Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 18 of Tom and Thelma, Thelma and Tom Look Left, or possibly episode two of the second series. Uh, so much to talk about, as always, and this week we've back to our old format of having a guest in the second guests in the second half of the show. So we better get started, Thelma. There's a lot to say here, but hopefully oh, you had a good week yeah. anyway. Yeah, yeah, lots to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if you've seen the Owen Jones piece um, this week um, on how the young are feeling about politics and society um, and who governs them in the future, but I found it very uplifting, actually. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, because it was one of my favourite things that's happened in a long time was when uh, when I saw the statistics, and even more so when I saw where they came from. Uh, yeah. the, the statistics came from the Institute of Economic Affairs, which is a, a right-wing think tank. And I don't really know what a th- think tank is, but but I've read some of their stuff, and they take what they do very seriously. Their Their PR image is quite good. Um, uh, I don't agree with much they say, but for them to have the courage to put this out, and I can't really see what advantage it is to them to put this out. I think no, it's but, a but but you know, as old socialists as we are, Tom, you know, to to hear this and and the views of younger people that that you know was in this piece from Owen Jones and that, and that quote based on Rousseau, the the, the younger hungry and the richer on the menu. <laughs> I just I just love that, you know. But yeah. but I also think you're not just hungry um they're, they're angry as well so if somebody put on my twitter feed it's hangry we should be using you know i that, saw so. that that was very strange wasn't it yeah. um yeah yeah but i i i just think that the the youth obviously are the future um and they're getting such a raw deal um and capitalism obviously isn't the answer it isn't the answer for every anybody but certainly not for our younger generation yeah, let me just, I'm, I'm just going to read this straight out of the report. It won't take a second. The, uh, some fascinating statistics. Uh, this is, uh, they interviewed 2,000 people between the, the ages of 16 and 34 in the beginning of this year. Yeah. So things have got even worse since then, for goodness sake. 67% so they would like to live in a socialist economic system. agree with the assertion that climate change is a specifically capitalist problem. 78% blame capitalism for Britain's housing crisis. 75% agree with the statement that socialism is a good idea, but it has failed in the past because it has been done badly. Now, that's something we can discuss at length sometime, you know. Uh, I'm fascinated by that last statement. But those figures are incredible, aren't they? That's three quarters, basically, of people up to the age of 30 have no problem with saying capitalism's wrong and socialism's okay. Yeah. Um, And I think the the idea that they're going to be worse off than their parents in the future as well. You know, it's, it's this feeling that we're working insecure work, unaffordable housing and rents, um, I mean, I was looking at half of under 35s are renting in the private sector. So it's the landlords profiting um, or profiteering um, from sky high, in many cases, um, rents. Um, so, you know, wh- and while you're paying those rents, of course, you can't save up 
for for a mortgage a deposit uh, and own your own home um but and climate change as well of course is in the mix and the future uh, and what is going to happen in the future and again linked to capitalism and greed um and a lot of young people know this um and i think i think this report from the think tank and of course what uh, owen jones's piece is saying um is yeah uh, gloomy figures but but also very uplifting to know that so many young people who are the future and who will I do hope um, be uh, voting in a way that is 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 going to change stuff, and I I do think it it may take it may not be in our lifetime, Tom, but I do have hope in the future generations, and this is why I give so much support to um, Alex May and Philip Proudfoot um, with NIP and Breakthrough, uh, the founders and leaders of, of those two new uh socialist democratic socialist parties because i think it's young leaders like them that are the future um and they are speaking out um about exploitation both in the workplace and in housing um so yeah a, a very positive way to start our discussions today yeah really really good and uh, and uh, i'm just going to put this to you Thelma. interestingly and my stepfather was a tory and uh uh, my first political arguments were with him and uh, when I was uh, in my very early teens. And he used to say to me, um, I hope I can get this right, you've probably heard it anyway, uh, socialist when, something along the lines of, if you're a socialist when you're young, you're soft in the heart. If you're a socialist when you're old, you're soft in the head. And um, and I... Uh, I always thought I'm never going to, I'm not going to allow myself to drift into being right wing. I'm going to stick with my views and da 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 da. And I ha- I'm going to ask you in a minute. For me personally, as I went through my life and as I got more responsibilities and things tended to get a little bit out of control with kids and domestic situations and so on, I got to admit, I did drift to the right a little bit. I, I never went very far right, but I did get involved a little bit in the idea that I could kind of be in charge of my own destiny and make some money. And if I want to buy a house, I've got to make all that stuff. I did get into that a little bit, and that all coincided with Thatcherism and so on. But as I've got older, I'd say I've drifted to the left. I, so I'm guessing he would say I'm soft in the head. Fair enough. Mm. Uh, but I wondered what, what your political trajectory had been, Thelma. Yeah, um, well, I, I've always been, uh, I would say, on the left. I've certainly been a member or was a member of the Labour Party, as you know, for uh, 40 years or so. But, yeah, I, I will um, admit to I, I did leaflet, <laughs> I did canvas um, in the years of Tony Blair uh, and Gordon Brown um, and Ed Miliband. I've gone, you know, and, you know, and Neil Kinnock. I've, I, I've, I've done that as a member of the Labour Party, but I wasn't as engaged. Um, I, you know, I've got to confess as a, as a young teacher and mum of two kids with a full time job. Um, obviously, I was interested in politics, but that commitment and I suppose the understanding of what was really uh, going on and what was on the political agenda. Um, but I, I suppose I think I've mentioned this in a previous episode, but um, I suppose the 
big light bulb moment for me was really when I was head in a, a very deprived area and I saw poverty and the impact of it and inequality firsthand. And I think it almost, almost radicalised me really in terms of, of becoming much more left wing. Um, and, and then, of course, only for two and a half years, but being in Westminster and seeing the uh, centralisation um, of government from Westminster um, and and how, and again, another reason why I'm with NIP and that idea of breaking that control from Westminster um, is so important to me. Um, and, and obviously we, we can move on to just what's happened this last few days with uh, Starmer's proposals uh, for a change in the ruling uh, of in the electoral uh, college um, and getting rid of the one member, one vote. I, I, again, it's going to put more control with the PLP and Westminster, contrary to what I believe is needed. Um, so obviously I, I am more uh, left-wing um, than I was, but, I, I, you know, if you, it's not about being soft in the head, Tom. It's about having a socialist heart and head and keeping and being consistent. I think that is the thing that frustrates me with a lot of politicians, not all, but a lot of politicians. It's going back to the Tony Benn, you know, um, whether you're a signpost or a weather vane. And so many, they, they kind of watch out for, oh, what's going to win the votes? Where am I going to win the votes? Where What's going to make me popular? What's going to get me interviews? Rather than what's in your heart and your head and what, what do you believe in terms of a fair and more equal society and sticking to that. And, and a lot don't, you see them, well, you see them um, duck if they think it's going to get a bit, you know, at the moment there's a lot of silence, isn't there? Yeah. Um, from, from a lot of politicians because you, and you can see them peeling away from Starmer, can't you? You know, one after the other and those that were out there speaking up for, there's one or two that are still going on. Uh, there's an interview with um, Ben Bradshaw and uh, Laura Pidcock on Newsnight um, I saw last night and Laura Pidcock was speaking out against this change and the Electoral College being brought in and the right of every member to have a, a say in who is the leader of the party. And Ben Bradshaw's intimating that the PLP members know how to choose a, a leader far better than that. Just totally out of touch, totally out of touch. Um, but Laura spoke up really well. I thought I was really proud of her. I thought she, I thought she did incredi incredibly well. Um, and Because it's not easy because she was at the end of the line and he was in the studio. So it's not easy when you're the one out the studio but she, she did really well but yeah it's interesting times and we're coming up to conference um so that 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 it should be really interesting but why raise uh, getting rid of this one member one vote um i i just cannot fathom I they, 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 they do seem to be absolutely determined to resolve this issue of the left don't they uh, you kind of can see this maybe i'm a conspiracy theorist but you kind of see this agenda fairly strongly now that they are just going to keep going until until we're gone. I mean, we're gone already. Um, but, um, you know, there's some in there on the left who are hanging in there because they've got such loyalty and so on. But how much more can they take? I mean, that that last thing, what you're just talking about, that one man, one vote, one person, one vote, 
I mean, I would have just thought anybody on the planet could understand that that's how it should be. Um, yeah. I mean, someone was saying, well, in a minute they're going to say, you know, some of us aren't really qualified to vote in general elections, you know, because we, we don't know enough about the subject. I mean, where is it going to stop? I know. It, it, it but it's it, getting rid of the left rather than fighting the Tories. I mean, that that's what I... And, you know, and it's not a good look on Newsnight to have one former Labour MP um, and and a Labour MP um, having a go at each other, because obviously that feeds and plays right into the uh, Tory hands. Um, and it, 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 it's just not good. And causing this division just before, and, and I'm hearing that members are being threatened with disciplinary action and being suspended just before conference. Um, and having gone to conference for many, many years, and you, you you have to pay for accommodation, transport, all the rest of it, it's really expensive that week because everybody, of course, puts the rent, the, you know, the, the cost of the accommodation up, but it, by the sky high. Um, and so, a lot of the members, if they then face at the last minute this suspension, they'll have booked their accommodation um, and and their pass to get into conference, presumably. Um, so it's an awful thing to do, just from that point of view. Never mind what they're playing at. Um, I mean, we know what they're playing at. I think they're keeping anybody out in the left on the left out of that conference hall. I think that's the, I think that's the aim. Yeah. Um, but it's just a dreadful thing to do. And, and I'm threatening an MP, Kate Osborne MP, this week with this. Yeah, that was interesting. Which was rescinded within a few hours again. I think what a chaos. They've got some real mavericks in there somewhere doing crazy stuff. But, I mean, I'm sure they're doing it under instruction. Um, uh, they, they've clearly got a list of people that they want to discredit, and uh, and they're trawling through their social media, which is absolutely pathetic, really. I mean, if they were to trawl through the social media of the, of the people on the right, they would find equally, well, it's not even awful stuff, is it? It's, it's insignificant yeah. stuff, like liking yeah. a tweet and stuff like this. I know. But going back to that thing about the, the you know, the bad look of the division, I, I do agree with them in a sense in that you've, we've got two parties in one party and it's ne- I don't think, having been in the Labour Party for just a few years and seen what it's like and felt it at a meeting and... Uh, I don't think there's a future for it. And I do think they're on the right track in a way that they need to kind of break it. Um, But from the left's point of view, yeah, I mean, there's so many of us now on the left are just thinking, oh, come on, come on, come on, let's do it, let's do it. Um, And and, and I, I think in a way... I know, and today I had so I was involved in a conversation on Twitter, and someone was saying, "Oh, you know, but you can't expect them to. You can't expect the left to just leave because they they they're scared they won't have any voice at all if they do that." And I just think, let's do it. Let's have it out. Let's see where the support is. And I reckon, to be honest, the support will be on the left. I reckon we'd have more members than the Labour Party in no time at all. We'd yeah, we've well, just been saying, um, Tom, about the younger voters and that demographic um, and what they're saying and believing um, answers that really, doesn't it? Absolutely, I mean, yeah. Good point, Thelma. And and when you think about it, it's huge numbers, seventy-five yeah. percent, and and yeah. they're going to trawling after a few disaffected Tories that can't handle Boris Johnson. And look, yeah. and that's why the polls are like they are. Uh, yeah. 
I, I think it's just so obvious that it people is. And not- we've got to remember as well, since 2019, we will have many more thousands of youngsters that are now of voting age than they, and they weren't in 2019. So as the years go on, I don't want to be rude about the older generation because I'm one of them, <laughs> but more and more right-wing people are going to be falling off the perch and we've got younger ones coming up facing yeah. climate as I say, you know, unaffordable uh, rents and housing um, and, and you know, tuition fees, the lot. You know, there's, there's so much yeah. um, that they're facing the younger generation and um, they need a socialist government. And, you know, as long as I've breath in my body, I'm going to be supporting that younger generation um, and, and hoping I see it in, in my lifetime, Tom. Yeah, I'll I tell you one thing in that, I, I, you know, I know Owen's a controversial figure, but, you know, sometimes he writes good stuff. And, He's really wrong um, at the moment. <laughs> one of the things he put, I think it was in that article, I don't know if it was, about uh, dating sites. Was that in there? Yeah. And um, yeah, really funny, there are no there are no Tory <laughs> dating sites. Because, <laughs> it was so funny. No, no, no young person wants to admit they're a yeah. Tory. It's that Tim Nice but dim image, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyway, yeah. So let's you know, let's hope all those people hold their nerve, and I, I think they will because circumstances being how they are, if you you don't own property and you you have no hope of owning property, and you can't get a, a, a big salary and you have no hope of getting a big salary, why are you ever going to really? drift to the right once you've yeah. seen the reality of the situation. I think the numbers game, in a way, and the situation with the planet and all of that stuff, you, you almost feel it's inevitable that we've got to reorganise. We, we've got a couple more points we'll briefly cover. Um, I mean, I don't fully understand what's going on with the energy thing, but it is causing absolute chaos. And... Um, and 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 some chaos for some of the poorer people that is not going to be funny chaos. I mean, it's all very well for me. I sit here. I'm kind of relatively well off, and uh, yeah. And I, I when I see a crisis, I almost I'm almost pleased sometimes because I feel like that's going to move us closer to where we want to be. But if you're at the bottom of the pile, a crisis like energy crisis is not funny. And no, fuel poverty is not funny. Um, no. When- you're an old person sitting in, you know, your flat on your own and uh, unable to afford uh, to pay your bills, your energy bills, um, um, or, you know, or a young parent with children. And ch- and that choosing literally between heating and, and eating, you know, which is what we've got to. And we're obviously with the cut to universal credit as, as well. Um, and because uh, that 80 odd pounds a month going, national insurance going up if you're in work um, and you're on uh, low wages, um, interest rates going up. There's just so much happening that is going to make it so, so tough for so many people. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, they're not using the word Brexit or that Brexit's got anything to do with this. But we, we were in the EU's internal energy market. Um, within the EU, um, there's those subsidies to support at times like this when prices are going out of control. We pulled out of that through Brexit. And so it's left us and nobody's mentioning that or it's hardly being mentioned at all. Um, And so we're in this situation now where, you know, empty 
uh, food uh, shelves with no food, uh, delivery, blaming delivery drivers, blaming anything, anything. But but the lack of foresight in terms of what happened um, after we came out of the EU, um, because it's not happening. I mean, I'm I'm you know seeing reports from people living all over Europe. I'm not saying everything's perfect, but they're not seeing the empty shelves um, and um, they're not having problems with their gas supply. Um, so it, it begs the question um, of our government, what the hell have you been doing um, in terms of future planning and future proofing uh, what happens with uh, supplies? Um, so, and, and we shouldn't be bailing, you know, the taxpayer shouldn't be bailing out these smaller energy companies that are going bust um, I mean, we bailed out the banks um, after the crash, and um, you know, it's government shouldn't be bailing out private enterprise. This is capitalism, isn't it? <laughs> Back well, to it. As basic as energy, uh, you know, things like gas, electricity, water, uh, things really where there's it's one thing. It's not like uh, you know, various people are making different kinds of gas or or there's various different supplies of water. It's universal stuff. It's, mm. You know, if ever there should be anything that's uh, owned by the state, those, those are the things that should... Oh, of course, public ownership, certainly. And it's a right to basic, your basic needs, you know, to be met um, of, of, of everybody um, around the world. Um, and, um, yeah, definitely. It was all, 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 of course, in the 17 and 19 Labour manifestos, again, I always yeah. say that. But, yeah, well, yeah. let's stick with it, Thelma. It's good stuff, and and uh, you, you'll never find anybody having an argument against much of that stuff in those manifestos because they know, in yeah. reality, it's right. Yeah, and and needs to be even more progressive now. You see, I I really NIP's policy of UBI, universal basic income. If ever there was a time it was needed, it's now. Um, so yeah, building on those policies um, post um, pandemic, um, but but yes, uh, the, there is hope in the future generations, and that's that's a, a good thing to think about and to yeah, work for. Absolutely, and that's a good good place to end uh, part one. Uh, it's been a good little chat, Thelma. I always I do so enjoy talking politics with you. <laughs> Such fun. Um, Me. And um, uh, so, yeah, uh, we'll take a little break and we'll be back with part two shortly with our guests. Thank you. Okay, so here we are, part two of Thelma and Tom Look Left and this week's guests I, i'm really excited to be able to introduce the rickard sisters um i probably won't say anymore i'll just pass over to thelma thelma's more involved with um sophie and scarlett than i am and uh, and and i'll ask a few questions towards the end uh, thanks tom oh, great to see you both um, at last to see you both because we've been in contact and uh, and you did send me, I mean, our listeners won't be able to see, but I've got my copy um, of your graphic novel, uh, Ragged Trouser Philanthropist, and uh, I loved it. And um, I, I just wondered what prompted you to actually choose this uh, classic uh, 
novel and how did it work through COVID or did you actually produce, write and do the illustrations before COVID? And I've just so many questions I want to ask you (laughs) about how it came to be. Well, it came to be... um... Over, it was a very slow burn, really, in the in the scheme of things, because uh, my I'm Scarlet. My my um, uh, godfather used to give us give me a book every birthday, um, and when I was about thirteen or something, it was the Ragged Charles of Philanthropist, and it was such a massive tome, and there were so many words, and I just thought. I can't, I can't read this. I can't be reading this stuff, you know. And we used to use it to, to uh, weigh down our tents when we were making dens. <laughs> um, and then years later, when Sophie and I started uh, doing graphic novels together um, and the rise of socialism in the Labour Party and Corbyn in the leadership election and stuff, I kept coming back to it and thinking... If you took out all the description from that book, it would be half the length. If you drew everything he describes, it would be much easier to absorb it. Um, And so I suggested it to Sophie. Um, And, yeah, the rest is history, really. It's one of those those books that gets recommended more than it gets finished because it is hard. It's old-fashioned and it's very long and... Mm -hmm. It's not a cheerful read. Um, And so what we've tried to do is to sort of distill it for the graphic novel so that it's a bit more accessible, but it doesn't lose any of the message. No, it it doesn't lose any of the message at all. Um, I think, and you know what else I think is wonderful, is you'll know that I'm a former teacher, head teacher. And I think I've seen that some copies are going into schools. And, and one of my things is the lack of political education um, in our education uh, system and the thought of this story being accessible to so many children really warms my heart, you know, because it, it's such an important message. Um, what, what you were saying, Scarlett, about how you first got a copy, um, my granddad was a, a coach painter um, in Gorton and, and uh, Ardwick, you know, poor area of Manchester. Um, and he was the one that first mentioned um, the book to me. Um, well, they, they used uh, to call it the Painter's Bible. Yeah, because it was passed around on building sites and stuff from person to person. And we're really keen to carry on in that tradition. You know, I mean, one of the things about graphic novels as well, from an educational point of view, that's that's really engaging is that it's it's much easier for dyslexic people to to take in a story. And so by doing the graphic novel, we're hoping that it's giving more people the opportunity to read something that they would never have even begun you know wouldn't have started um in the first place so yeah we've got some really good feedback from people passing it you know people buying lots of copies and giving it to all their friends and yeah yeah it makes it so much more inclusive doesn't it um on on lots of levels um and and i i just feel though as well that in terms of going back to the political education that the messaging um, I've seen it on your social media, some of your tweets about how what's happening at the moment with food poverty, fuel poverty, um, insecure work, the messaging like over 100 years later 
um, just doesn't seem to have changed. It's, it's heartbreaking, really, in a way, because we're seeing the same things that are being described in, in your graphic novel. It's um, so they- remarkable how well, the original work took apart the capitalist system and sort of laid it bare for us all to see for what it is. And so that's what the graphic novel also does. But I was saying to Scarlett earlier this week that I just see what enrages me on the Today programme on the school run and then tweet about that every morning. And there's always an illustration to go with it. The day that we wake up and there isn't something in the news cycle that I can illustrate from our book, I'd actually be quite happy. But as it is, there's a lot of content to go at. So much has changed in the last century but at the same time, so little has changed. And it's the same message that the hero Frank Owen is trying to get over in the Ragged Trouser Philanthropist, that the, we are all of us, although we spend a lot of time probably in our left bubbles, we're surrounded by people who don't trouble their heads about politics, who keep their heads down, try to not put, you know, get... Um, involved in things that don't concern them and just put up with whatever is done to them and that's what the book is trying to change is to just give people the opportunity to see the system that they're part of from a different point of view and that hasn't changed at all. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom do you want to come in? Yeah on? so I, I'm, I'm fascinated really on, about so many things really. Firstly when I first heard uh, uh the Ricard sisters in my mind I made this picture of you as being like you know uh identical twins or something or or like totally like um I just thought the Ricard sisters it's really old-fashioned and I had this kind of idea and and then I when Thelma said oh we'll we'll get we we can get them on our podcast and I I quickly had a little read up on your website and you're you're actually very different separate people you're not like welded at the hip or anything are you you're despite our parents um, initially dressing us the same (laughs) no we've gone our separate ways in a lot of ways but uh, but we do everything together it's very collaborative so although um ostensibly our roles are different I do the drawing and Sophie does the writing we are involved in each of our disciplines so so we might edit stuff together write stuff together and and Sophie has input on what I'm drawing and suggests me you know suggests I change things to make it work better you know so it's all very collaborative we talk every day but at the same time we're not identical twins we don't we have different interests outside of graphic novels and we disappointingly don't look very like each other I think it would be better if we did (laughs) yeah do you come from a political family the only possible answer to that is yes (laughs) so (laughs) from both sides uh, we have some fairly extraordinary grandparents so our dad's mum was a fairly active member of the communist party during world war ii and Uh our mum's dad was a um infamously left-wing bishop of the Church of England (laughs) so we were brought up in a very actively political 
household, I think I was canvassing in my pram in the 79 election. Um, Our parents were active members of their local CLP. And we were very much brought up to think that we can change the world and it's time to get on with it. And what we've done since then, like you say, is we haven't necessarily followed the same path since then, but we've done it with the same attitude. Mm. And what you are doing is changing the world, you know, because it's changed through small steps and um, and what you're doing and that messaging um, it is going out there. Did, did you, could I just come in and ask you how lockdown and the COVID period impacted on you both? Because you both live in different places, don't you? Yeah, we live in different places um, and uh, we, we were working working from home remotely before it was cool. Ah. Um, I mean, we, we've been, uh, you know, using shared documents and FaceTime to work on our stuff for years. So um, in a way, it didn't affect, um, it didn't really affect our practice. The, the thing it did affect, I suppose, is that the book came out during lockdown. Uh, it came out September last year. So it's, it's been out a year this week, I think. Um, and so, of course, we didn't do book launches or, you know, and the other side of it is as well that we, we're we both disabled. We both have a um, hereditary um, connective tissue disorder, um, which means that we've had to be very careful throughout this whole period because we're vulnerable. Um, so one of the things you think of when, you, when you're publishing a book is, oh, I can go into a bookshop and see it on the shelf. But I've still not been in a bookshop. <laughs> but you know, for the last nearly two years, I've not been in a shop. Mm. So, uh, so that's been a weird thing. But it didn't actually affect our our work um, that that much, really, because we we live three hundred miles apart. So, yeah. So, so did it in a way? Um, did you find it quite uplifting then to to actually have the book? be published while you're in lockdown you know because I know you couldn't go into the bookshop but but it was all over social media and did get a lot of promotion didn't it from um, I know Dan Carden um I spoke to Dan Carden about this some time ago and uh, in fact he he had a performance uh drama performance of it in parliament um it would be two or three years ago now um but I know he he was really delighted um with your novel and uh, Jeremy, Jeremy Corbyn, I know that had a copy with Ian Byrne, didn't he? So, so it got big promotion. So I'm sure that did that cheer things up during lockdown. Oh, massively. Yeah. I think that the opportunity to use social media to reach the audience that were ready to see it was a really good opportunity. And maybe if we hadn't all been stuck indoors at home, it wouldn't have reached so many people. I don't know. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, well, certainly it was whizzing. I know that, that the, the few weeks when it when it was launched. What what's your future projects then? What what you have we got well, planned? Is it well, secret? No, we can tell you all about the one that Scarlett is currently drawing, which is a a, a sibling for the ragged trousered philanthropists in a lot of ways. It is an adaptation of the novel No Surrender by Constance Maud, which is. Mm-hmm set in about the same era as um, The Ragged Trousers of Philanthropist, but this time it's all about the struggle for women's votes. Oh, wow. I'm interested in that. It's a 
very um, action-packed um, uh, novel of civil disobedience. And it's got some really strong characters from working class backgrounds and also from aristocratic backgrounds uh, working together to fight the patriarchy by being naughty. Um, <laughs> a little bit of a love interest as well you know it's it's a really really fun exciting book that um at the time when it was published it was used as a sort of you know uh recruiting sergeant for the votes for women campaign um and I think the modern relevance to us is all about the boundaries of what kind of civil disobedience it's okay to make a point, whether it's all right to break the law to make a political point, whether there should be more polite ways of asking for change. And I think with the um, everything going on around us with the climate and also racial injustice, I think it's going to be one of those books where I don't have too much trouble finding current relevance when we come to be talking about it on social media when it's finished unfortunately I have stuffed every single page with a crowd scene so um Paul Scarlett is drawing um oh, day. yeah so we're we've got quite a bit yet to do so oh, can you um can you tell can you go through the um the actual practical process of how you make a page of your books, because I, I'm overwhelmed by the amount of work that seems to, you know, go into each little picture even, let alone masses like you're doing. I mean, how do you, how do you know what to paint and how, who, how's it, who sorts it out? <laughs> well, Sophie um, did the adaptation for The Ragged Trials of Philanthropists, and I think that that was just such an amazing undertaking because the original is something like 255,000 words long, and she managed to distill it down and to throw away all the bits that she didn't think were so relevant and 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 we were we were expecting there to be a backlash about the things that we chucked. And so far, we haven't actually not not that anyone said to us anyway nobody's said but you didn't keep in my favorite bit you know but so she started by doing that and you started at each end didn't you worked your way to the middle yeah which did my head in <laughs> so is, is the text all brand new or is it just the same text taken out and put into the no my original ambition was to keep trestle's dialogue and that quite quickly became apparent that that was not going to work apart from anything it was still way too long I was going at it with nail scissors and I needed a hedge trimmer Um, (laughs) and then even when it was um, really really almost the right length we were then rephrasing things so that people could understand it because of the Edwardian turn of phrase and also Trestle's somewhat patronizing portrayal of working class accents so we we so a lot of the dialogue is extremely close to the original, and so the, those famous familiar passages still feel right, but an awful awful lot of it has been sort of tidied up a bit as well. Hmm. So I would hand Scarlett a script a little bit like a screenplay, and then she becomes the director, the producer, the costume department the set designer the location scout she's just in charge of everything else really 
<laughs> we are obviously a great team. Obviously a great team. I can't wait for your new new book to come out. I really can't because, you know, I'm in Cone Valley and it's known as the Radical Valley and lots of suffragette action here, mm-hmm. uh, you know, around 1906 in, in particular with the Victor Grayson period and all of that. And around the corner was somebody called Florence Lockwood, um, uh, suffragette. So, you know, and, and the Pankhurst came here. So I'm really into it. Um, we have somebody called the Baby Suffragette. Uh, Dorothy Ulis that was arrested outside Parliament so I'm, I'm really into that so uh, well, when do you think great. it'll be out? Sorry? When do, you, when do you think it'll be out? When do you think it'll be published? Well hopefully next uh, next year 2022. Oh brilliant. Yeah. If wait. I can draw all the crowds quick enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, it's great for us because as, as Lancashire lasses, um, uh, it's nice because there's there's a lot of mill workers in it, which yeah. which is great. Yeah. yeah. But, but from from answering your question, Tom, about the drawing, um, when when Sophie hands the screenplay, basically it's the screenplay to me. Um, it'll say you know a little bit of a description of of the place and then just what people say and it's up to me to arrange the panels and things um and you it's fascinating the way you can use panels to interact with the reader to to speed things up or slow things down and it so um I lay it all out on the computer just in the panels based on a we do like a storyboard just in pencil and then I draw it on the iPad so it's all drawn digitally which has just changed my life completely um Mm. I can draw anywhere and I don't have all the mess of paint and everything everywhere um and because of my joint problems I can I can draw without friction which is just such a relief because if I draw on paper for long my hand starts really hurting So, so it's great, you know, so what I do is every day I, I finish a page if I'm, if I'm not drawing a load of people and send it to Sophie and then, so she, so she gets a page a day and then we have a little chat about it. Uh-huh. And so we, we kind of edit it as we go. And then we have a brilliant editor called David Hine. So when, when we finish a chapter between us, we send the chapter to Dave and he goes through it. And you know, gives us pointers or suggests things. So. What's the time commitment um, for both of you? You know, you mentioned each day. Is it is it seven days a week? Is it you know full day? How many, what, What's your time commitment? Um, mine comes and goes. So I am now working off and on on not no surrender, but the one after that. So I've always got to have pots on the boil for the minute Scarlet stops drawing because I can't allow her to stop, not even for five minutes. So Scarlet's time commitment, apart from earning a living, is, I don't know, what are you doing, seven, eight hours a day? Probably, yeah. Seven days a week. Wow. And that's that's what it took to get the Ragged Trouser Philanthropists out. But then that's how you get a book with that kind of rich detail and all of those background things. That, I mean, and Scarlett can't help herself. I don't put in the script and now draw really elaborate wallpaper 17 times on this page, but it's what she does. <laughs> Perfect. Can't it's, help it. Oh, you're, <laughs> so talented. you're both so talented. You really can't. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. Look, so listen, uh, before you uh, before we wrap up this session, I, I'm going to go off the topic of the book a bit. When we started the podcast, we had, Thelma and I had a lovely conversation about some things that had been going on that made us feel quite optimistic about um, life on the left. I wondered how you both feel about the political situation right now. So apart from writing graphic novels, I am also tangentially involved in working with young people. And I think that has got to be the greatest cause of optimism at the moment. I genuinely feel like if we were to put the teenagers in charge now, it would probably do us a favour. But as it is, we can hang on probably just about until they can wrestle power from the old people like ourselves. <laughs> um, I think that young people's attitudes to um, human rights and respecting each other are so fundamentally more civilized than the generations that preceded them that it is going to be okay in the end yeah yeah what about you Scarlett I, I agree I agree I think it would be very easy to feel overwhelmed by all the terrible things that are happening at once not not just worldwide but particularly in this country um, and I mean, for the last, you know, the last few years with the, with, um, the Labour Party, I, I just kept thinking, thank God we've got a, a, an opposition to all this crap, you know. And now I'm thinking, hmm, <laughs> you know, where is the hope? And it's where it's what Sophie says. It's with young people because they they are passionate about climate. They're passionate about its social justice. You know, and, and I think inequality, and I think it's really important to to listen to that. Yeah, but that's incredible to hear you both, because Tom and I were just looking at each other on the screen here. Because at the beginning, our conversation was just about what you both just said yeah. about that hope in the younger generation, and we we hope Tom and I, older than you two, that that we live long enough to actually see see their hopes and dreams come to fruition and we do see a socialist government and we do see an end to inequality and all those issues that are in in your graphic novel and and what Robert Tressel uh, wrote about you know so thank, thanks for that because that that brings us full circle beautifully Tom doesn't yeah, it, it does. what a beautiful what beautiful ending that was totally unplanned as well couldn't, couldn't ask for more so <laughs> Thank you so much for agreeing to come on to our podcast. It's been absolutely lovely talking to you both. Um, and, uh, yeah, what can I say? Th thrilled. Lovely ending. Couldn't be better. Um, Thank you very much for having us. We've had a great time. It's been a pleasure. And, um, yeah, uh, looking forward to your next book. Really, I haven't, actually, I haven't even got a copy of your current book. I, I'll, get on, I'll get on and buy one straight away. Um, anyway, Thelma, that was great, wasn't it? It was, it was. Say, oh, before, before you go, before you start, Thelma, I'm just going to say uh, goodbye to everybody for myself. But if you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe to it and, and make sure you'll get to hear every issue because um, they are, the timing is going to be a bit more erratic from now on. And it'd be a shame uh, if you enjoy our podcast that you miss it. So uh, like and subscribe. Um, yeah. And uh, hope you enjoy this episode. It's uh, been a pleasure to do. Yeah. I'm sure, Thelma. Thanks to you, Tom, and to our guests, the Ricard sisters. And I'll leave you with the words of Robert Tressel. 
Every man or woman who is not helping to bring about a better state of affairs for the future is helping to perpetuate the present misery and is therefore the enemy of his own children. There is no such thing as being neutral. We must either help or hinder solidarity.